Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an episode of Making Sense, a Eurodollar Enterprise with Jeff Snyder. We're going to be talking about reverse repo program purchases by the Federal Reserve. For those of you that have been paying attention, you know that uh, several weeks ago, this incredible number was reached, half a trillion dollars. And I asked Jeff to explain it. It was a very popular show. And looking back at that, what a quaint number, half a trillion. A day ago, it reached three quarters of a trillion. Jeff, mind-boggling. And you know what's mind-boggling, Jeff Snyder, head of the global research team at Alhambra Investments. You know what's mind-boggling? The paper, that the, the article that you wrote, you said that's not the most important part about what happened. So we're going to get into it, that, Jeff. But let's see, where, where should we... Yeah, well, that's exactly what you state. RRP total was an astounding three quarters of a trillion from now 68 counterparties up from 520 billion just yesterday. That's not the most important part either. Okay, what triggered this move, first of all? And then we'll get into why is this important? Yeah, I mean, we got to back up a little bit first and go back to Wednesday. Wednesday was the FOMC meeting where everybody focused on the dots. Oh, my God, there's rate hikes coming in 2023 or something like that. <laughs> but in the minutiae, the, the Federal Reserve made a couple adjustments to their what they call a double floor system, which is IOER and the reverse repo. The reverse repo has usually or it has been up until this point set at the bottom of the federal funds range, which since last March has been zero. So the reverse repo rate is the rate that the Federal Reserve has, pays counterparties to borrow their cash. So if you're a money market fund, you've got excess cash that you, you can't lend in the repo market. You don't want to lend unsecured in Fed funds because the Federal funds market is basically dead. You can go to the Federal Reserve's window and say, well, you know, I'll give you my cash. You'll give me collateral. It's sort of like a repo trade. Therefore, you know, I'll, I'll just... I'll take whatever whatever the Fed's paying rather than do something else with the with, with the with the cash that I have. And so on Wednesday, because of all of this cash buildup that's going on, money market rates that are compressing down towards zero, the Fed is starting to get a little antsy about interest rates, money market rates, short end rates, maybe going beyond that that lower zero bound threshold and breaking out of the federal funds range, which is a big, huge no-no in monetary policy terms. So they raised IOER by five basis points to 15, and they raised the reverse repo so it's no longer a floor. At least it's not, it's not matching the floor of the federal funds range. It's now at five basis points. So, so beginning yesterday, June 17th, the Federal Reserve paid five basis points on reverse repo where for the year and three months before then it had paid zero. And so that's why so many uh, counterparties went looking to park cash at the reverse repo window because it now pays five basis points rather than zero. But that's not the whole story, nor is it, I think, even the most interesting part of it. We're going to get to um, we're going to talk about the zero lower bound. That's a very important concept here. But before we do, and by the way, audience, the article that you want to be reading along is the FOMC accidentally exposes itself reverse repo style posted on the 17th of June at Alhambra Investments. Let's go back to episode 79, Jeff. Audience, please go back there. This is episode 84. Go back and listen or watch that episode to learn a little bit more of the details. We're just going to go high level right now. Jeff, the mainstream orthodox view is this is working how it's supposed to be. There's too much cash Therefore, this program by the Federal Reserve is sucking that cash out of the system and sending U.S. Treasuries back into the system. But in episode 79, we pointed out that this program started to percolate during two key dates, during moments when things started to go bad, meaning signifying it's not a cash too much problem. It's a something not enough problem. What was that? Yeah, well, it can be. It's not an either-or situation here either. There is too much cash in the sense that money market funds are having difficulty parking their excess reserves or their excess cash in repo markets, for example. And so, it's it. There is the case where there is more than enough 
funds out there in these markets that is suppressing interest rates. And therefore, in that sense, the reverse repo is working as it's designed, which is to, to act as a conduit so that that cash doesn't doesn't suppress money market rates below the whatever whatever range the Federal Reserve has has, has decided is its target. That part is true, but one of the reasons why there may be so much excess cash seeking out the Federal Reserve's reverse repo is that maybe in repo markets, money market funds and other you know not even bank participants, non-bank participants, whomever who has excess cash can't find enough collateralized lender collateralized borrowers to in order to undertake the same sort of transaction so it may be that they're not looking at the fed's reverse repo strictly for you know return reasons higher rate or a better equivalent rate it's because that's they're the only the feds and its enormous soma portfolio is the only is the only borrower out there with sufficient collateral to take up all of the size and that indicates something very different as we talked about before that's more about hey the system may be collateral constrained and cash rich which is sounds like well no big deal right there's there's enough cash around there who cares but as we've seen time and time again over the last 14 years in many cases collateral matters more than the cash does and so if there's if there's a situation where we can identify there's a collateral shortage, maybe not shortage, but scarcity, constraint, some sort of limitation that's, that's impeding the normal market behavior. That's kind of what we need to focus in on. And that's really what the reverse repo can tell us. It can tell us, yes, there's excess reserves and it's soaking up and all that stuff, but it also might indicate that counterparties with cash are having trouble find, finding uh, a, a usable, uh, usual borrowers who have the collateral to engage in these repo transactions. As our discussions and interviews with Professor Carolyn Sissoko and philosopher Daniel Watt pointed out, we're in an era where collateral is very important. Before 2007, it was cash that was important, right? You didn't need the collateral, and that's a sign of trouble, of stress, of, that the system is struggling. So yes, collateral is very important right now, and as we talked about in episode 79, some things went bad right when this program started to be used. And one of those things that went south, pear-shaped, was that Fedwire turned itself off for several hours on the 24th. Was that right? Or the 25th? 24th? 24th of February, yeah. Well, Jeff, guess what? You wrote an article on February 8th, not after February 24th. On February 8th, you were writing, hey, guys, keep an eye on RRP. And you, that's when you brought up the lower bound, the zero lower bound here. This is what you said from that article. What we see in the bills auctions and their secondary market data is the same kind of sustained high demand. So much demand that over the coming weeks, it could push yields on them below the zero lower bound again and the RRP. Okay, why is the lower bound important and what did the Federal Reserve do yesterday that now will allow us to see something new? Well, first, you know, well, what had happened since early January was Treasury bill yields tumbled, really. Uh, and it was all, all the maturities of the bills out to the 12 months. The rates on them just fell towards zero. And in many cases, over the last couple months, they had reached zero at auctions and secondary market prices. We even saw that an eight-week bill uh, price in the secondary market at zero a couple times as well. So there was incredible intense demand for treasury bills. As we all know, as we say around here, treasury bills are the best of the best of the best form of collateral. So they're already by February, we're sort of like, you know, our interest is peaked here because there's suddenly an intense scramble for bills. Now, part of that was supply related because Janet Yellen faced with debt ceiling constraints and refunding uh, mechanism and all these other things. There was going to be a sort of a bottleneck or squeeze in terms of supply, but still overwhelming demand for bills that pushed yields down further and further and further toward the zero nominal boundary, which is a constraint because, number one, at auction, as we talked about before, the government won't sell bills at a negative yield. So the lowest they'll go is zero for various reasons we don't need to get into here. So at auction, you're never going to get anything uh, anything better than zero. So you can't overbid at auction is what I'm saying. 
However, in the secondary market, you can go below zero. As we saw last March, that absolutely did happen. But to go below the zero lower bound in terms of nominal yields in the secondary market, you'd have to be, it would be an incredibly uh, desperate situation because nobody wants to buy an instrument willingly that's going to lose you money on a short-term basis unless you absolutely have to and have no other alternative. That explains why negative yields last March, the same as briefly in October 2008 too. So the zero lower round isn't a technical constraint as much as it is sort of a it's, it's, it's sort of a secondary constraint on the willingness of participants to essentially sign up for a loss on Treasury bills. However, they will go below the zero lower bound if conditions are bad enough. So if we go back to the last couple of months, what we see is that bill rates didn't go below zero. Does that mean that the RRP held them above zero and they would have gone below zero if, if, if allowed to? Well, we don't know. And you can't, you can't separate the two out because the zero lower bound and the RRP were set at the same rate. So you can make the case that, oh, that was just the reverse repo rate at zero, soaking up the excess reserves and acting as a floor for everything. Well, what happened this week uh, with the FOMC meeting on Wednesday, with the Fed raising the RRP rate, rate by five basis points, they've essentially separated the zero lower bound from the reverse repo. Now that it's five basis points above the zero lower bound, Let's see how Treasury bills in the secondary market react to that now, the distance between the RRP and the zero lower bound. At his press conference yesterday, Jerome Powell said, quote, the reverse repo facility is doing what it's supposed to do, which is to provide a floor under money market rates and keep the federal funds, federal funds rate well within its range. So we're not concerned. I didn't add that last part, Jeff. He said, <laughs> so we're not concerned. Right. I'm going to go back just a little bit in well, time. No, I think that's, that's important, too. Let's point out that from the Federal Reserve's perspective, they care about the federal funds rate. Yeah, that's something, too. Their target is ridiculously still focused. It's a, so absurd. It's They're wild. They're focused on a money market that's been dead for almost 15 years. And as they said in 2014, thinking about all this stuff, going through all this, you know, should they transition to a repo rate, all this other stuff. What they said is they're they're worried that if they transition to a repo rate, the communication signaling to the rest of the public would be interrupted because nobody would understand. What they're really saying is you're too stupid to understand monetary policy signals if the Fed changes out of the out of federal funds rate, because the federal funds market is completely, utterly devoid of most a lot of activity. It's certainly not like it used to be. So again, highlighting the fact that Federal Reserve is focused on the wrong thing and for the wrong reasons. This isn't really about money, it's about signals. And that's really what they're saying is they don't want the federal funds rate to go below zero because that could signal to the public the Fed has lost control. And that's what really that's what Jay Powell was saying is that if we move IOER up five and we move reverse repo up five two, that'll recenter the effective federal funds rate. And we all go, Congratulations, good job, Jay. Except the rest of the market says we don't care about the federal funds rate. There's everything else that we need to worry about. The repo rate. How about treasury bill yields? Where are they now that the federal funds rate or the reverse repo rate is now five basis points instead of zero? That might be a hell of a lot more important. I'm going to read a, a line here from the Federal Reserve. It's in one of its academic theory papers, February 2015, and they're talking about these floors. So again, the point is the floor. Mr. Powell just said the floor, and here's an academic paper from February 2015. Quote, in theory, as with the IOER rate, the overnight RRP rate set by the FOMC would be expected to establish a floor on short-term interest rates, particularly if overnight RRPs are available in sufficient quantity to satisfy demand at the overnight RRP rate. With such a facility in place, geez, these acronyms, overnight RRPs would always be available, always be available to counterparties as an alternative to other investments. So counterparties that can invest in overnight RRPs generally should be unwilling to lend elsewhere at lower rates. Jeff, before we, I show this graph, this was written in 2015. 
I feel confident in saying that if this was written in 20, 2007 or 2006 or earlier when central banks were central, we wouldn't see in theory, would be expected to, or generally should. It, it would all be they would, but they have had some bad experiences with floors. And I'm going to pull up the most recent floor and you tell us what's happening to yields. Well, yeah, are. again, it's it's one of those things that sounds intuitively like it makes sense, right? If the Federal Reserve is paying the X amount for, uh, you know, for to borrow your cash on a collateralized basis, why would you lend anywhere else for less than that, right? If the Fed is paying, say, one percent at the reverse repo window, why would you lend in repo at any at say ninety eight basis points? I mean, it's the same exact transaction, except in the secondary market with an unknown counterparty. So why wouldn't you? I mean, in theory, it sounds perfectly consistent there. You would never lend to anybody outside of the Federal Reserve at a rate less than the Federal Reserve is willing to pay, especially since the transaction is you're, you're lending cash to the Fed and it's collateralized by U.S. Treasuries. I mean, it's, it's, it's about as safe as it could possibly be. And if they're paying you X, X percent, you would, never, you would never do anything less than X percent. Except as we know, Throughout 2017 in particular, the RRP was repeatedly violated by short-term treasury bills. Yeah, there's a chart exactly. And what that said was that, you know, again, same situation. Why would you buy a four-week treasury bill when you could just park money at the Fed's reverse repo window and get so much more than the treasury bill is paying you? So if you have a four-week treasury bill, just roll over reverse repo for four weeks and get much, so much more. And what it tells you is that the Fed realized that, hey, there's other things going on here. But more than that, it shows absolutely perfectly clearly that there is value in especially Treasury bills over and above their return characteristics. So there's a utility here in Treasury bills, specifically Treasury bills, that, does, that isn't captured in you know, comparing alternative investment returns. So the reverse repo isn't a floor in the respect that there are other ways in which these things get valued, especially treasury bills. And as the chart you just showed before, what happened this week was exactly that. Once they moved the, the uh, RRP up to five basis points yesterday, and this has continued today, by the way, treasury bill yields actually did come in less than the reverse repo all day yesterday and, and throughout the day today, June 18th, because there is a value to treasury bills over and above what, what direct comparison lending at the RRP with the Federal Reserve. There's a utility and a value in them that you do need. We weren't able to see when the RRP was at the zero lower bound. So going back to what we said before, it, it seems like you know maybe there was a chance that the secondary market bills might have been uh, might have gone negative if not for the, uh, or might have gone below the RRP, if not for the zero lower bound being in the way first. Jeff, to conclude, we have this surge in activity. It seemed to begin when some other markets struggled, when the U.S. Treasury re yields peaked. Yeah, you were making this point, and then we kind of got it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> kind of got off on a detour there, but well, yeah. No, and that's, it's, I think that's, that's, that's probably the more important point here is the implications of all of this collateral business. When we now see the collateral business more clearly, that, that you know, Treasury bill yields are below the RRP, that gives us the sense that there's collateral constraint and value in the Treasury bills, shortage of Treasury bills, whatever you want to call it. And so that's why I think you can line up the long-term Treasury yields changing from reflation to anti-reflation at the exact same time, middle of March, Going back to February 24th, um, there was a little blip in the RRP after February 24th. But really, middle of March, March 18th, suddenly you at long-term U.S. Treasury yields stop rising. They get out of reflation and start going into anti-reflation at the exact moment usage in the RRP started to go up. Now, it's, we're not saying that the RRP is causing Treasury yields to fall. What we're saying is those two are reactions to the same thing. And it's the same thing that's captured in Treasury bill, bills being priced at a premium that lowers their yield below the reverse repo equivalent or what's supposed to be a reverse repo equivalent. There's a collateral scarcity issue at hand right now. And it's not I mean, it's not an extreme one, but it's certainly one that causes, as we talk about all the time, what it suggests or causes is the, is the idea that um, 
that the system is maybe a little bit more fragile and weakened and less robust than it otherwise is, is said to be, which goes along with lower anti-reflation long-term treasury yields, which are essentially the implications of that. What it says is that there's a, the chances of things going wrong outweigh the chances of things going right because it's a fragile situation, especially where collateral is concerned, and that over time, something could happen, even something very minor could happen to disrupt recovery and inflation and everything else to, before it ever really gets going, because that's exactly what we've seen time and time again. You know, we have these reflationary periods where the fragility and weakness interrupts them before they ever get to where, they, where we all want them to go, which is full, full recovery. That's what you wrote in 2017, in June 2017, the article, Chart of Last Week, in Need of Official Address, when you were talking about this exact same thing happening in 2017 during globally synchronized growth, when everyone was in their bikinis and their swim shorts and on the beach and having a great time, and the future was wonderful, you said, fragility, we seem to need collateral, something might be wrong. Less than three months later, we saw our first spark. And then two months later, November and December, uh, something started to smolder. And by the end of January, we saw flames. And in April and May, the curtains caught fire. And then, you know, the next Euro dollar squeeze began. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in this episode? I think we've got it. But if not, let me know. Otherwise, we're going to move on to U.S. Treasury yields. No, I think we covered it's, you know, it's, it's not an either or situation. There is, ex, you know, money market funds with excess cash preferring to lend to the Fed. That, that's one reason why there's the uh, use at the RRP window is so high. But I think we, we really can't ignore the other side of that, which may be collateral constraint and scarcity, which is now the Federal Reserve doing us an inadvertent favor by exposing this even more, raising the RRP rate above the zero lower bound. We can now see Treasury bill yields below the RRP, which Again, like 2017 tells you all you need to know. So we talked about treasury yields and how they're indicators of which direction the reflation may be going. Jeff, I don't know if you've noticed a lot of people on Twitter are saying, well, we can't look to yields in the U.S. Treasury because A, B, C, D, E. And you know when this started? This started happening when the yields started going against the narrative. They weren't saying don't look to yields when yields were rising. In part two, we're going to go over a litany, maybe litany is too strong a word, a healthy list, a few bullet points of past experience that shows how treasury bonds have been predicting correctly for years which direction the global economy is going to go. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. Treasury yields are going the wrong way against the media narrative. We should be having a rip-roaring inflation and bond yields should be reflecting that. Instead, since let's say mid-March, they've gone flat and then more recently in the last couple of weeks, contra all expectations and surprisingly, they've been going down. What? Jeff Snyder, the head of research for Alhambra Investments, you wrote an article about a month ago that I've been meaning to get to, and we're going to talk about it right now. And the article is, No Reason to Toss Out Low Rates in the Inflation Debate, the Repo Rat Rate Fallacy, May 24th, 2021, Alhambra Investments. And Jeff, basically, we're just going to go back in time, step by step, from 2008, and look at U.S. Treasury bond yields, and we're going to notice that they correctly predict which direction they go but against the media narrative as to what QE is supposed to be doing. Have I done a good job setting the scene? What, how would you explain what we're going to look at? That's exactly, I mean, right now, with yields, first of all, remaining low. And as you pointed out, since mid-March going lower, well, people have thrown up their hands and said, well, that's just because of QE. The Fed is holding rates low. That's why the bond market isn't embracing inflation because it's embracing quantitative easing purchase. And more recently, You've seen people floating around Twitter, as you say, or social media, those saying, oh, the Fed's buying more than what's being issued. And it's that purchasing that's actually influencing secondary market behavior. And so, yeah, if, if the Fed would get out of the way, then the bond market would show you that the, the last couple CPIs were just the beginning and that this is all 1970s all over again. And 
we can obviously, there's tons of data and evidence that shows this is the case, right? Because everybody knows the Federal Reserve controls interest rates. It gets what it wants, right? So if we pull up the charts for QE, what we're going to see is that when the Fed is buying bonds, rates must be going down. And when the Fed stops buying bonds, rates must be going up, right? That's what happens. Well, no. You have your title. The title I wrote across this uh, printout here says, QE lowers bond yields equals false god. Let's go back to 2008. <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's it's such a it's such it's it's almost a hardwired into the public perception, right, Emil? Mm. Everybody believes that the Fed controls interest rate, and it sounds like it should be that way. If the Fed is buying bonds, then why wouldn't bond prices go up and yields go down? And that's what the Fed wants, right? And it's 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 doing all these things. But if you go back in time and you look at these things, it's exactly almost entirely the whole way. It's exactly the opposite. When the Fed announces buying bonds and then starts buying bonds, which you see, especially in the early crisis period, going back to 2008, the bond yields rose. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. Well, okay, July 2007, they had reached a peak, and then they started falling. Was the Fed buying bonds or any central bank buying bonds during this period? No, not during that period. That was the... That was the TAF auctions and overseas dollar swaps part of the program. And it wasn't until December 2008, after the the worst part of the crisis had erupted in the fall, that the Fed went to zero interest rate policy as well as announcing its quantitative easing purchase. And you can see right on the date that that was announced, the ZERP and QE, bond yields started to rise. So they had been falling during the crisis. No one was buying. Rising as QE was announced, which is, again, that's – that's that's not what's supposed to happen. Yields are supposed to go down when the Fed wants them to because that's stimulus. And what we see here is during the crisis, yields fall as things go wrong, and then they go up as it looks like maybe things are going to get better. That's really how you how you translate bond yields. Now, what about the middle of 2010? There was something happening in Greece, Jeff. Now, all of a sudden yields were falling again, right? Or going downwards. Yeah, QE1 ended, let's keep in mind, QE1 ended at the end of March, 2010. Mm-hmm. So by April 4th, you can see within a couple days, bond yields start to fall again. Huh. Wait a minute, I mean, that's that's the opposite, right? The Fed stops buying bonds, shouldn't bond yields go up then? Yes. No, they go the opposite way because again, you. Think about what yields are saying. What they're saying, as they did in 2008, was the bond market was saying, maybe this QE stuff will work. Mm-hmm. And if it works, that means more growth and more inflation. So the, the, the bond market in the early post-crisis era actually gave the Fed the benefit of the doubt, at least for a couple months. Now you can see that kind of stopped in the summer of 2009, where the market said, well, maybe not. But still, in the early period, what the what bond yields were saying was that hey, maybe this QE stuff will work. We see more inflation and more growth. Interest rates rose, bond yields rose in response to them. Then the Fed stopped doing QE1 in March of 2000, and then March of 2010, we had a bunch of other stuff happen. And then suddenly bond yields start to fall again without the Fed buying any bonds. And they hit their lows in October, at least for the uh, 10-year treasury. So you have, again, the same situation where the bond, bond market is telling you, regardless of QE, Things are going the wrong way. Yields falling means bad. And then in August, let's say, let's call it the autumn of 2010, Bernanke announced, hinted, and then actually began a second QE. So if central banks are central, then bond yields should have fallen even further and faster than they had started to right around when Greece was downgraded by the American rating agency, Fitch. Is that what happened? No, again, it's the exact opposite, right? So Bernanke shows up at Jackson Hole late in August of 2010. Wink, wink, nod, nod. We're going to do QE2 because things are going the wrong way. Don't ask any questions why, because we told you everything was fixed beforehand. And over the next couple months, up until October and early November, the signal for QE2 got stronger and stronger. But yet the bond market reacted to QE2 in the same way it had reacted to QE1. Rates more and more rose. In fact, the shorter term notes 
as you can see the two-year and the five-year on the chart here, they started going up exactly upon the start of QE2, hmm. which is, again, the opposite. It's not supposed to – it's supposed to be the other way. And that's yes. what it shows you is that the bond market says, well, maybe Q, if QE1 didn't do it, maybe QE2 will be enough, a little more growth, a little more inflation. But you can see how much less that already is than it had been in 2008. Yields never retraced as high as they had been earlier. So there's a little more skepticism creeping into it. But still, by and large, it was that pattern. QE, maybe it works. Rates go up, not down. It doesn't lower rates because bond buying – isn't, it isn't really about bond buying. It isn't about the Federal Reserve at all. It's about whether or not the future contains more growth and inflation. Let us now move on to the European sovereign debt crisis, or as we sometimes refer to it, euro dollar number two, also known as the final nail in the coffin of the post-Cold War globalization, the post-World War II order, the central banks are central era, the great moderation. This is when markets realized that once in four generation crises are happening more frequently than once in four generations. Tell us early January 2011, early 2011 was when we started to tip over again, down. Yields started to fall because the crisis had begun. What you see, what I didn't mark on the chart here was that QE2 ended at the end of June 2011. And oh, as you can see, the, the big drop, the big drop in 2000, the middle of 2011, I don't know if you can highlight it on the screen there, happened just after the Fed stopped buying bonds. Mm-hmm. Yep, that one right there. So again, the Fed stops buying bonds, yields collapse. Yields go down, not because of the Fed not buying bonds or anything to do with the Fed, but because it had become apparent by then that the world was experiencing another crisis. And the reason we bring up Greece and all this is because it was repo, collateral, all that stuff that we've been talking about a lot, collateral constraint and scarcity. And that was what was causing all this monetary problems up and down the entire global system. So it didn't matter if the Fed was buying bonds, except as we know now, and we many of us had said all along, the bond buying actually makes it worse by stripping the system of collateral. But again, Falling yields are not because the Fed is buying bonds. And in, every, in almost every case we see, that doesn't even matter. It's usually the opposite. It's when you see rising yields, that means more growth and inflation. Falling yields, less growth and inflation, largely because of monetary problems. So again, here we have another perfect example of the mainstream convention having it entirely backward, completely 180 degrees backwards. And as you might imagine, after going through this the second time, the reason we call this the nail in the coffin for the recovery in the post-crisis, post-2008 era, is because by then, the market had figured out that this QE stuff doesn't really have much chance of working at all. And therefore, from that point forward, you can see the reactions to QE, especially in the U.S. Treasury market, become very, very different than the first couple, uh, first couple quantitative easings. That's right. Dial it back uh, two minutes, ladies and gentlemen, and compare the slope that you saw after QE1 and QE2 to this in the yields recovering, going up to more growth, more inflation. Maybe this QE stuff works to the slope we see after Mario Draghi promised to do whatever it takes after the Fed said they would begin an endless QE3 and then just for giggles they added a they changed their program from mortgage-backed securities in september to treasuries in december we'll call it qe4 look at the slope the market says meh they meh. didn't get excited until ben bernanke set changed his mind suddenly and said folks we thought we were going to be doing qe until the sun exploded. But you know what? We're changing my, our mind. I think we're going to be dialing it back. That's when the market, wait a minute, it went the wrong way, Jeff. It rose? Yeah, that's the taper tantrum is misunderstood for that same reason, right? It's, it's oh, the bond market sold off because the Fed is going to be buying fewer bonds. Well, no, the bond market sold off because it, what they said was, oh, Federal Reserve officials are so confident that the recovery is proceeding in a way it hadn't up to that point that they're willing to taper their bond purchases that they just the year before they had said would be open-ended forever. 
that's what really set off Q, set off the taper tantrum. It wasn't the tapering part. It was the reason behind the tapering, which was the projection of more growth and more inflation. So bond yields rose is sort of a belated signal. Okay, now we see a little bit more evidence that maybe this time it did work because we see the unemployment rate falling very quickly. We see economic growth, at least in the United States, starting to pick up a little bit more. So maybe this time we will go back to growth and inflation. But look at where we are on the right hand of the side of the chart compared to the left hand side. Even this so-called taper tantrum didn't bring rates back up to nearly where they were after QE1 and QE2. So even as it, as yields are going up, it's signaling higher growth and higher higher growth and higher inflation expectations it still wasn't nearly as much there's skepticism built into the into the equation and as we see if going forward when the fed finally actually when the finally did taper in december of 2013 what happened to yields again they went the wrong way the fed actually did taper and yields started to fall throughout 2014 as the qe2 and qe3 and 4 were actually ended and they continued to fall even further into 2015 and 2016, hitting new new lows by the time we get to 2016. Because so that again, was the third euro dollar crisis emanating exactly. out of China. It's not about bond buying. In most cases, it's the you know the market behaves the opposite of the way it's supposed to, because bond buying by the Fed doesn't really make as much difference as you're as you're led to believe it does. The Federal Reserve is not central. It, it engages in these purchases as sort of an act of theater. It's really about about trying to convince people that it's doing accommodative things without people really asking, well, what's being accommodated by all these bond purchases? Because it can't be lower yields because lower yields come about for other reasons beyond the Federal Reserve. And that's why, as we talked about many times before, all of these central bank studies, the best that they can come up with is Oh, if you do with this enormous QE that's 10% of GDP, maybe it lowers yields 50 basis points. That's because the market does the lowering of yields, not the bond buying. At most you can say is, well, the yields would have gone wouldn't have gone as low as they did without the bond. That's really what they're saying. They're saying yields wouldn't have gone as low without QE as the as the private market said that they did. I think it was episode 77. It was the 20th anniversary of QE, where we discussed that study, which came out of New Zealand. So if anyone's interested to hear about these academic studies that look back on two decades of quantitative easing and kind of shrug their shoulders politely because they're in the economics business. So check, you know, go back to those episodes and check it out. Jeff, I guess what we have just discussed makes no sense if central banks are central, but to money supply, but if they're not central, if markets are central, then this makes all the sense in the world. And it makes me think of that David Parkins illustration with Galileo at his telescope. Do you remember this one, Jeff? He's yeah. at his telescope. He's looking up at the moons of Jupiter and he's figuring out, wow, moons are going around Jupiter. Maybe this confirms what Copernicus and who else was the other guy that uh, realized that the Kepler that uh, the Earth is rotating around the Sun and then you remember the David Parkins illustration Bernanke on his tiptoes dressed like a Pope with the with the drawing in front of the telescope with the Fed at the center and the currencies revolving around it and I guess Jeff what is the final takeaway in case we haven't said it? If we have, we're ready to move on to part three. Well, first of all, it wasn't just one central bank study. It's all of these central bank studies that fail to come up with any kind of benefit from QE because by and large, this is what you see. Interest rates move independent of the central banks. And really, that, that really, that really cements what you're supposed to look at and what you're supposed to really focus in on here is why are interest rates moving the way they are? Regard, set aside QE, set aside the Federal Reserve or any other central bank. Understand what motivates the bond market and what motivates bond yields. When you can see and match them up with QE and say, oh, there are times when the bond market gave QE the benefit of the doubt, rising yields as the Fed was buying bonds because the market was saying more growth and more inflation, this stuff might work. And so using that framework we can thus say what's going on in 2021 this year and next year and going forward is if 
the bond market thought that the Fed's QE or you know Uncle Sam's helicopters or all these other things were working, interest rates would rise regardless of whether or not the Fed is buying bonds. It's not the bond buying, it's the bond market. So if the if 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 there was in any way market belief or consensus that there was more growth in inflation because of all these things, or even just because of random good luck, interest rates would be rising. The Fed is not holding rates down. What is holding rates down is the market perception that there is no growth, there is no inflation. Remember where yields are right now. They went from obscenely low levels to a little bit less obscene than obscenely low levels. And that hasn't budged despite CPIs, despite all this QEs, quote unquote money printing, bond bond. The, bar, the bond market is telling you it does not foresee growth and in inflation regardless of what the Federal Reserve does. It's not the bond buying that's holding rates down. It's that, the other stuff, the lack of growth and in inflation opportunities. We didn't bring it up in this episode, but you can't go four articles if, of Jeff's work without seeing this graph comparing the slope in this reflation to the slope of the previous reflations. And remember how you said, compare the right side of this uh, European recovery taper tantrum to where we are on the left side of the graph and how it wasn't higher. Well, that reflation, that taper tantrum was so much more than the one we're looking at right now. Again, uh, recovery, unlikely, implausible. The markets don't feel it. Jeff, 15 months we've been doing this show, 15 long months. It feels like every single day I'm on, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just trying to make it sound like it's exhausting. It's not, I love it. 15 months, and you know what? One of the topics I don't believe we've ever discussed. We're gonna talk about that in, in part three, and that is data revisions. We're going to talk about how the economy was faring in 2017. And people are saying, wow, data revisions. What happened four or five years ago? What do I care? Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to care. It's very important. I think, I think that some people are going to issue an expletive when they see what the data revision told us what, and what was being told to us at the time. It's going to be very important. Stick around. The Federal Reserve reports on industrial production in the United States of America. And, well, it's very interesting. Do they go to every factory gate, knock on the door and say, hello, my name's uh, Jerome Powell. How is your activity this month? And then report back to the statisticians? No, they don't. No, they don't. I guess that's, that's it. And that's the end of the show. All right, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff Snyder, head of research at... Alhambra Investments. Jeff, they don't do that. They do an estimate, but then eventually they get a better estimate. Tell us, how do they collect this data? And then the data revision is, wow, what, what a revelation. We're going to get to that. But first, how do they get this data? Yeah, most, almost all economic accounts are done by sampling because it's just, I mean, you can't go to every business in the economy and say, especially on a monthly basis and say, what, what, is, what was your level of activity this month compared to last month or last year? So they, they, they pick out a panel, a survey panel, and they call on these people regularly and they use them as the basis for com coming up with uh, monthly high frequency estimates for how things are progressing. And then usually every year, they go back with a much larger sample to, to, to check their work, so to speak, to say, okay, the high frequency data using a smaller sample. Were we, were we close? Were we there? Did we get it right? I mean, how far off were we? Because a, a, a much larger sample, you have more, more high degree of confidence and accuracy. And that's usually what these benchmark revisions are, are about. It's when whatever, whatever uh, government agency or data collection agency goes back and uses a much larger sample on a much more infrequent basis to benchmark where the, uh, the data is in relation to where it should be given the much, much greater sample. The Federal Reserve is, of course, with their industrial production numbers, they do exactly the same things. The article that we're reviewing is called Yields, Not Dots. Another example of why inflation had no chance. And that was posted on the 16th of June at Alhambra Investments. Well, one of the statistical, and you said it, Jeff, you put the word tricks in quotes. One of the few statistical tricks 
that they use to help themselves is called something called trend cycle is that one of those new peloton bikes that i've been hearing about jeff the ones that are recalled because they're killing children or something i don't know no well, we the can write cycle. off that sponsorship jeff thanks a lot yeah i think so so trend cycle is nothing more than a subjective assumption that's incorporated into high frequency data and not just industrial production but a number of high frequency data accounts simply because economists need to have some way of sort of centering where their estimates go for any uh, monthly month to month changes. So what they assume is that, look, if if we're in a recession, then regardless of what the whatever the panel sample tells us, it's likely to be a downward progressing, uh, a downward progressing baseline. And so we'll mark our change, our monthly changes based on a downward sloping baseline or background. And of course, the benchmark revisions come along and say, yes, that was a good idea or that wasn't a good idea. And consequently, if you think you're in a growth period, you would you would you would uh, chain all of these monthly progressions to an upward sloping baseline. But again, you're assuming that with trend cycle that the trend in cycle is going to match all prior trends in cycles because that's really what you're using to form formulate this subjective assumption about how to chain together these monthly monthly changes in whatever underlying data. So trend cycle becomes sort of a subjective component where you're already sort of you're already sort of assuming that yes, because we're not in recession, it must be in a growth period that looks like other growth periods. And that can lead you into all sorts of trouble. Jeff, I think the punchline of this show, where we're heading is, is that the statisticians in charge of this trend cycle don't watch this show. No, and it, it, they don't watch the show, nor do they pay attention to the bond market, which I think is oh, our overriding burn, thing Jeff, here, no. okay. is that look, you know, when we go back to, you know, 26, 2017, 2018, and those, those years, uh, what we saw was, hey, bond market is saying things are not going as well as we think they are. Number one, 2017, globally synchronized growth isn't all growth. It's globally in sync. It's global and synchronized, <laughs> sure, but isn't necessarily growth. And then 2018, we're seeing all sorts of stuff go haywire. And then what we call the landmine, which showed up in October 2018, which was the market essentially saying, this thing is already going wrong. So while Jay Powell and the Fed was still talking about inflation and rate hike, in fact, they did two more rate hikes right up until December of 2018. The bond market was saying, no, 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 no. This economy is already in reverse. Things are going badly. And using, you know, you will use the Fed's industrial production numbers here. Well, as you just well, had. I'm sorry to interrupt, but. There's the graph. There's the yes. bond yields all of a sudden doing a 180, heading the other direction, while the central bank, the academics, they kept raising rates because, according to their models, the economy was improving. Uh, and then you could see the yields just slicing through that policy yeah, even range. before even before October, you could see how the curves flattened out. And that's the Euro dollar futures curve. Right. How the curves flattened out and inverted in Euro dollar futures, which even before we got to the landmine was a serious warning that, hey, the hidden participants in the monetary system that are very close to the actual conditions in the real economy because they operate in the real economy, they're telling you what's going on. Yeah, you can have all the data you want. You can use Furbis and other DSGE models, but this is the system from the inside. This is the economy from the inside telling you what's going on in real time, pricing out in markets. And what we saw was that oh, even before the landmine, these, these participants deep down in the real economy, close to the real economy were saying, Things are not going well. And then as we got to October in the landmine, what they said was things are not just not going well. Now they're really, really not going well. In fact, things are going the wrong way. Well, that was the economy trying to tell you that something is already wrong here. Well, you can't blame the central banks, Jeff, because the markets don't have PhDs. <laughs> so, you know, what do you, did the market go to Yale or some Ivy League school or Oxford? No, Jeff. So... Let's not be too hard on our monetary technocrats. Okay, so now we're looking at industrial production, and we have several lines on here, and they represent revisions. Jeff, I see... These are the various yeah. annual benchmark revisions. And so the series that are based on those benchmark revisions, which you see the dotted, the, 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 the dashed blue line, which is the, the, the previous benchmark before the one that was just released uh, this week, 
What it shows is sort of like what the mainstream narrative had been, which was that it looked like the economy was progressing relatively fine up until up until December. Maybe it had slowed down it slowed down a little bit in the middle of 2018, but still largely healthy and moving forward, consistent with Jay Powell's idea of rate hikes. Now, that was just data, though. That wasn't the real economy. The real economy was something else. Again, the bond market was saying, I don't care about your IP, uh, your IP samples and, and your benchmarks and all your data and things like that. In the real economy, you're not measuring it properly. Things really are going in the wrong direction. Of course, now we get the benchmark revisions for the 2021, which were delayed. We didn't get any benchmarks last year because of COVID. But the benchmark revision of 2021, the Fed finally says, oh, our bad. You guys were right. The economy really wasn't good in 2018. In fact, when it hit the landmine, it was already reversing. So, yes, the bond market absolutely nailed it when it said that the real economy in reality was go- was very different than what Jay Powell was saying, what the data was saying at that time which was things were the, the condition, the economy, growth, and th- everything else was still moving forward. When, in fact, we see now, after all these later benchmarks, no. Not only that, not only had the economy already started to reverse in 2018, late 2018, we also see that the year before, 2017, globally synchronized growth, supposedly the basis for this inflationary rescue and everything else, yeah, that wasn't as good either. So not only did the bond market get the 2018 part absolutely perfectly right, it also got 2017 correct, too, when it said, no, we're not seeing a lot of growth in this globally synchronized crap. It's really kind of un- underwhelming. In fact, it's, it's suspiciously underwhelming. So it doesn't matter what the data said at the time. The data was faulty. And it's only later, years later, do we see that the data gets corrected and shows that, yeah, Maybe we should have been paying attention to the bond market and bond yields all the time because they got it completely correct. Jeff, not only did the bond market get 2017 right, 2018 correct, but I'm worried. I'm looking at the post-2020 revision. That looks really bad. What that's telling me is... That might be even the worst part, right? There was... Yeah, that's right, Jeff. Real time right now, the latest revision, just looking back a year, says... We are uh, much worse off than uh, we thought, which corresponds to what the bond market has been saying. Yeah, low yields, right? Yes. Yields that remain stubbornly low. And guess what? Here we see in the revisions where the, the at least industrial production, and it's not just industrial production, but a whole lot of data. It says, you know, hey, look, this rebound from the, the recession last year has been a whole lot less robust than you know even than we thought before, and it wasn't that great to begin with. What we thought before, this last benchmark revision showed maybe the bond market has a point here. So not only did it get 2017 right with low, low the way the yield curve was behaving in 2017, it also seems to have gotten 2018 completely on the nose and maybe by the way all those people rushing to dismiss low bond yields in 2021 might want to rethink that strategy because time and again what we're seeing is those are the participants in the monetary deep in the monetary system right next to the real economy doing real transactions with the real economy telling you in prices price behavior inscrutable or in in irrefutable price behavior that says this is what's going on. And if long-term interest rates aren't rising, then it's a pretty solid signal that you're not seeing the growth and inflation and all this other stuff that that supposedly would come about if if uh, you know this money printing stuff the Federal Reserve did actually worked. The bond market is telling you. And now the data, which has been faulty up to this point, is also agreeing. And here's the worst part here. The benchmark revision that just happened well, that's just the venture equity revision what just happened. Given the way bond yields are, and as you always point out, Emil, the, the, this reflationary period is, is the worst one by far, would we really be surprised if three years down the road further, at you know three more benchmark revisions, the Fed says, oh, by the way, the rebound that already got written down, we're going to write it down even more. We're going to say that the, the, the economy's rebound from 2020 was even less than we thought it was. 
we wouldn't be surprised, number one, because that's the history of these kinds of things. And it wasn't just 2017 and 2018. The Fed and all these other data agencies had the same problem in 2014 and 2015. And I, you know, they're probably going to be the same thing again, especially as bond yields remain so incredibly low that they're telling you that things really aren't that good. And it's so again, would we really be surprised if three years down the road? But that's 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 kind of the point too, is that here we are three years later, and oh, sorry, we got it wrong. Our data was faulty. Guess what? Jay Powell's ridiculous story about inflation recovery. Now nah, that was never really happening in the first place. It seems that seems kind of important to have known at the time and not just three years later. And even though this is the first time we've discussed data revisions on this show for 15 months, as you mentioned in 2014, you've been writing about this for a while and we see that consistently. Yeah, th this is this one of those things that really it, it kind of makes me mad because you say it's, you know, by now, I mean, nobody cares about 2017 and 2018, right? It's that's ah, who cares we've got all our we got our own problems to but this is this is really important because it's it shows you listen, listen to the bond market. It, it's got its fingers on the pulse of the real economy because that's what it does. Stop listening to these other people. Even the data is faulty, especially in these reflationary periods, especially given trend cycle bias, which tends to overstate them anyway. And it really it's 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 so frustrating because only years later when nobody cares and nobody pays attention do they come back and say oh we got it wrong sorry about that you know anybody who was thinking jay powell and his right hikes were the right right thing to do nah no big deal we we just completely missed out on it it's well, just completely completely frustrating thankfully we have the mainstream media jeff snyder to ask these questions at these press conferences so don't worry uh hmm well maybe you are worried because another article that you wrote something similar on was titled more than a benchmark peeve it's more than a pet peeve it upsets you jeff and people may be saying well it should, okay. it, i think you know you i think you agree this should upset upset everybody right i mean this this should be one of those things where you say look you guys your data is faulty, and then it's not like you make a big deal coming clean. It's sort of buried in the benchmark revisions that come out with regular uh, monthly reports anyway. And it's not like the mainstream media. I've never, ever seen a mainstream media article on benchmark revisions. So it's not like it's widely publicized. And I would imagine that 99.9999999% of the public has never even heard of benchmark revisions, let alone this, the, the, uh, the gravity that's contained within, especially these reflationary revisions, that end up completely rewriting economic history because economic, actual economic history turned out to have been very, very different all along. And it was the same economic history that the bond market was pricing in real time. So as we as people are very quick to dismiss the behavior and yields and euro dollar futures and dollars and all these other things, maybe you need to think again. And if you don't know about these benchmark revisions, maybe you don't have this, the same reasoning for thinking that way. But when you look at the benchmark revisions, and as I think you're trying to pull up here, it's not just industrial production. It's a whole range of data, including retail sales that says yes. Economic picture during these reflationary periods doesn't match up with what what uh, what mainstream policy whatever expectations or narratives at the time say. By and large, there's usually a very different underlying case in the real economy, and the data is not suited. The high frequency data is not suited to capturing these problems. May 14th, when you published this article, more than a benchmark peeve, I tweeted about it and I said this is one of the most underrated aspects that I don't hear anyone else talking about during this, during this downturn, this silent depression, these revisions, it's a scandal. It's, it's quite important. Like I said, it's just very important yet underrated, underreported. And as you said, retail sales. So people may say industrial production, how quaint, how 1950s, what do we care? It's a consumer economy. Guess what? Same story, retail sales. Jeff, is there anything to say other than looking at this graph that we see retail sales being revised down when more uh, comprehensive data is at hand? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's the same picture, which is, you know, 
it's not like economists or the statisticians that the government set out to mislead the public. That's not what's going on. It's just that the way that they construct these statistics are ill-suited, and they've been shown repeatedly to be ill-suited to this post-crisis era. Because, number one, I think trend cycles leading them in the wrong direction because these trends are nothing like prior cycles. And number two is that, look, I think there's enormous amount of difficulty in parsing these, these, different, these different levels of changes, which, going back to our overall theme here, maybe they should be paying attention to the bond market. Maybe the statisticians should be getting their trend cycle, cycle assumptions from the behavior of yields and euro dollar futures and things like that, because time and time again, we see that the yields have their pulse on the actual economy. Whether or not the data at the time shows it, we're reasonably assured that the data in the future will go back and rewrite history that's that's even closer to the bond market's view contemporarily. Jeff, if we haven't covered something that you want to, let us know. Otherwise, I'll tell the audience that today's show was sponsored by David Parkins Illustrations and your upcoming appearance on the 23rd of June, a Wednesday, if I remember correctly, at noon at Hedgeye, where you're going to be discussing the topic is inflation tsunami. I can't wait to watch it. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had uh, Mr. The inflation tsunami. I, I'm wondering, is, is that what I'm going to be talking about? <laughs> they had uh, David Rosenberg on yesterday. And uh, as I've told you on the show, it, he has also been saying transitory, not going to happen. But he came at it from a completely different angle, not the monetary angle. He came at it from an economic perspective. I haven't watched yesterday's show yet. I'm, I intend to. So if he's changed his mind 180, forgive me. But the two episodes uh, where he appeared before, I saw him saying, no way, no way, no way. So it'll be very interesting. Next week, Wednesday, the 23rd. It'll be great. And it's free yeah. for everyone that wants to, wants to watch it. Jeff, yeah, any final Hedge words? Hedge ITV. Yeah. Great. The... Well, I was going to say second best, but then I like think there are all these great shows. George Gammon, Nick Black. My God, there are so many good shows out there. Never mind. It's a great, great, uh, great program on Hedgeye. Jeff, anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to say? No, I think just wrapping this up, our theme this week for these episodes or these parts of the episodes is people want to dismiss bond yields and low bond yields because they don't like what they're saying. But history has shown time and time and time again, even data has shown, don't do it. Don't dismiss low yields because the low yield, at least the people who are producing low yields are telling you what's going on in real time. And if, if you're thinking that, oh, it's, it's some artificial, we can just, uh, it's our star, it's bond buying, it's whatever. No, no. History has been very clear on this subject. Follow the bond market, not economists. That ding-a-ling-a-ling sound that you just heard, Jeff, was not my publicist messaging me on my phone, but me realizing what I'm going to ask David to draw. I'm thinking of a Zeus-like figure. Beautiful, beautiful. David, like the, the sculpture, Zeus. And he's standing on a mountain, and, and somewhere it says bond market. And then you see some guys and uh, ladies at the bottom somewhere, and they go, ah, you know, his shoelace is untied. I don't know. We're not going to follow those of that guy. Anyways, that's the, that was the Yeah, it's, a, it's, a logic, from... it's almost a logical fallacy. If you don't like something about some little tiny thing, we'll just dismiss the entire message, right? And it's, 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 it's completely mistaken because, you know, this is information. It's really good information. It's probably the most pristine information. And that's really the point with our last segment here is, you know, even this economic data, which, you know, industrial production for the Fed's industrial production goes back 100 years. Yeah. This is the creme de la creme of economic data. But even it is not pristine. It is subject to all sorts of faults in, in the data. And these faults have become more frequent, especially during these reflationary periods. So bond market information, actual market discounting actual things as they take place versus faulty data and even more faulty narratives about the faulty data. You can see where you really should be focused. Thank you, Jeff. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Emil. <laughs>